Good morning. Good to see you all here. I see we have some folk visiting with us. Good morning. Welcome. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12, verse 1. Today is our communion service, so as is our tradition, we will uh, break and then uh, take about 10 minutes and regather when you hear the music. No dinner and um, no choir rehearsal, uh, also no evening service this evening. New Acts and Facts are here for November. No prayer meeting there uh, Wednesday at 7. Andrea's uh, number for the prayer chain. We have an addendum to that. My phone is dead. <laughs> Do not call Andrea. Did, did you drop it in the water? No, the battery just died. Okay. Um, yeah, you know what? Um, Laura said, oh, that came over from Jared or it something. Did, it was yeah, Jared's phone, okay. not mine. You can text our home phone number. It's, all, it's in the. Um, okay. It's in the I, I will get text it. somebody. Text and Jared, and it'll get out. Don't text Jared. Don't. So, yeah, somebody but him. <laughs> text Terry. Text Terry. There you go. All right. Um, a thank you for faithful giving. giving. Uh, uh, pizza and trivia night, uh, November the 8th. That's here at the church, 6 to 8.30 p.m. Bring your own snacks and soda, and then $3 a person for pizza. Uh, sign up on the helps board. And today is the last day to sign up for that. So um, I'm, I'm doing the math. Um, that is this Friday. So uh, sign up today uh, so we'll know how many uh, are going to attend that. Also, not in your bulletin, I see mercy here. So that was an, that's unexpected. So we are thrilled that the Lord is working in her life and that he answers prayer. So mercy had a little struggle this morning. Good to see you. All right, what else? Nothing? Our scripture for meditation this morning is 1 John, read chapter 1, that's 1898 in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship. George, will you open for us? Thanks. Father, how we rejoice at being able to gather with your people today. We thank you so much for this opportunity to come into your house and to worship you. Uh, we thank you for Jared's message this morning in Sunday school. What a delight it is for us as your people to recognize that your delight is fellowship with us. And that it all comes from you. It's by grace that you have reached out and touched us, that you have cleansed us, and that you have freed us from sin and the consequences of that sin. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk righteously in your sight. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts and souls this day. Open our minds that we may hear and see the truth of who you are. Bless Pastor as he speaks this morning on the things of God and gives us the word of life. Uh, we ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Remain standing. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 405, 405 in the brown hymnal.
deal. I saw that hand. Uh, we sing in the red book. No. 327. 327 in the red. One day he's coming. 327. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? A, a reason for picking this hymn? The, the hope and the knowledge and that we know that Christ is going to return. Absolutely. Amen. Okay, 327 in the red.
Scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 24 through 32. And in case you think we moved Genesis, that's a typo. It's page 16. So Genesis 11, 24 through 32. <laughs> Stand with us as we read together. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. O Lord, bless this message and this scripture. In the name of Christ, amen. Take your red hymnal and turn to number 655, 655 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11, verses 24 and following. Today we begin a new series entitled, Traveling the Road of Faith. with the sub-theme, Living by the Promise of God. It's the story of the patriarch, Abram, whose name means exalted father, whose name was later changed to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. The story of him and his wife, Sarai, her name means princess, again, later changed to Sarah, meaning noble woman or queen. Now, neither of these two people were from any kind of royal line by birth. They were just a married couple whose lives revolved around raising livestock, principally sheep, moving from one grazing pasture to another. They lived at the period of time directly after the Tower of Babel, wherein mankind, after the flood, refused to disperse throughout the earth as God had commanded him to do. And under the leadership of a man named Nimrod, they attempted to build a tower. You've heard of the ziggurats. Well, these were towers. Atop of which they inlaid stones depicting the zodiac. Verse 24, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Literally, the Hebrew says, whose top is the heavens. That is, of course, the zodiac. So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, verse 4. I want you to think about this. No one would build a tower in the plain of Shinar, that is the lowlands, verse 2, if the goal was to reach high enough into heaven to avoid the catastrophe of another flood. That just doesn't make any sense. But it makes perfect sense if this tower was to become a worship center. Many people of that day, the Egyptians, the Persians to name two, worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars. But it was part and parcel to rejecting God and resisting his command to repopulate the earth after the great flood. These idolaters had one thing going for them in their defiance of God. Verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. You know, unification demands common communication. One of the barriers that exists even today in our own country is the large Hispanic or Arabic populations that do not speak English. And that is mixed in with our English-speaking culture, which, by the way, is required for citizenship if you're going to become a citizen of the USA. 
So here in the plain of Shinar, we have all these descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, chapter 10, verse 1, numbering into the thousands. They all speak the same language. They can all understand each other and work together just perfectly well. There's no language barrier whatsoever. So the city and, the dis- and this tower design to make a name for themselves, verse 4, and to provide a cohesive environment for unification and solidarity in protest to God's command to disperse can proceed to schedule just exactly as they want to resist God. All the factors were there. We're all one. We all speak the same language. We can defy this God. We don't have to scatter. We can stay right here where we are. Everyone who agreed on the building project They were committed to establish their own religion, which was one of idolatry. They were convinced that they could defy God and pull it off. But you know, it's not so easy to defy God and get away with it. Many are the plans of a man's heart, writes Solomon, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Verse 6 of our text says, The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, let us is the plural of God, God the Father, God the Son, God of the Holy Spirit. Come, let us, the triune God, go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all of the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world and from from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, verses 6 through 9. See how easily God can deal with the plans and designs of men. Just think of this, a simple thing. They're all speaking one language, but what if now there's a group that's speaking Spanish and another group speaking French and another group speaking whatever, Russian, Chinese, How are they going to work together? How are they going to get anything done on this city? How are they going to get this tower completed? Well, that's the point. They're not. They're not going to be able to do it. They don't understand each other. So what do they do? They disperse. God wanted them to disperse. He said, we're not going to do it. Yes, you are going to do it. And to make sure that they did it, he confounded their languages. Because the basis for unification was destroyed. The population went from speaking one language to speaking many. And so they migrated throughout the earth according to their dialects and according to their language. And within their language groups, then, yes, 
they could and they did establish the various cultures that we have throughout the whole world today, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Great Britain, Hispanic, so on. But God, God got his way. The plans of the people to build one state religion with one language group was frustrated by God, and these idolaters were forced to comply with God's command reluctantly. That's our God. How easily he gets his way, even when men shake their fist in his face and defy him to do anything about what they're doing, what they want. So this brings us, brethren, to the singling out of one couple. Got all this going on, and God reaches down from glory, and he singles out one couple called Abraham and Sarah. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you do things. We think we're so smart. We think we can defy God, shake our fist in the face of God like a a child with a tantrum and get our way. We think we can stomp our feet and scream and holler and protest and you will leave us alone. But you don't leave us alone. We're going to learn this morning how thankful we should be that we are not left alone by you. For if we were, we would perish. Thank you for pursuing us. For dealing with our temper tantrums. And for working in our lives to bring us to repentance and faith. Honor the truth of your word this day, we pray. For the glory of Christ. Amen. Now, as noted in the uh, introduction, you have all these people, all these nations going on in the days prior to the, <clears throat> the distribution of the earth, and God reaching down from glory, as it were, and I've said it this way, he singles out a couple, Abram and Sarah. He turned his attention away from the nations in general to one people group say he can't do that well yes he can and he did do that there's a hebrew literary device found here which is worth noting every time moses is the author here so every time moses intends to change directions in what he is relating he uses the hebrew word toledoth toledoth meaning the account of or the generation of The term is used 11 times all total, and in each incident it becomes a title for which, (coughs) excuse me, for what is to follow. For example, Genesis 2-4 we read, this is the account, the Toledoth, of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and that what follows is a description of the early years of our planet's history. Adam and Eve, the fall into sin, and so forth. The Toledoth. In chapter 5.1, this is the written account, or Toledoth, of Adam's line, and then the line is given. Chapter 6, verse 9, this is the Toledoth, or count, of Noah. And then the line is given. Chapter 10, verse 1, 
This is the Toledoth of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. And then the line is given. Now look in our text, verse 10. This is the Toledoth, the account of Shem. Who was Shem? Well, he was the godly seed which replaced Abel, whom Cain killed, you remember. And in verse 27, this is the account of Terah. Now this expression, the account of, will not appear for 14 more chapters till you get to Genesis 25, verse 12. This is the account, there it is, Toledoth, of Abraham's son Ishmael. And verse 25, this is the account of Abram's son Isaac. Now you might ask, so what? <laughs> what all this indicates is that the use of Toledoth, this is the account of, introduces a lengthy section of Genesis which incorporates Abraham and his descendants alone. Which indicates that God has turned his attention away from the nations in general to a new spiritual world in the line of Abraham. He did this previously in the great flood of Noah's day. Think about it. Let me read it for you. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and how it had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. His heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind out whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. What I'm saying here, and what the scripture is saying here, is the flood reset the clock on humanity by starting over with a new head of the human race, Noah, of whom we just read, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, verse 8. But after the flood, we read chapter 10, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent with their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. But according to verse 1 of our text, they didn't spread out enough. And what is more, they reverted to their old wicked ways of replacing God with idolatry. God promised Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Genesis 9, verse 11, verse 15. Okay, but here we are in Genesis 11, and the people have degenerated into gross idolatry one more time. 
They've built a tower in defiance of the worship of God alone, and God had to disperse them by confounding their common language. So it appears that the nations are destined for an ongoing defiance of God and subsequent judgment by God. What then does God do? The answer? He opens another chapter in human history, the calling out and establishment of his people, beginning with another couple, Abraham and Sarah. He determines, as he said to the pre-flood people of the earth, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Genesis 6, verse 3. Now the world might be happy about this. Okay, wow, wonderful, good. It's about time God left me alone. I don't care to have God running my life anyway. But this is very, very serious. When God abandons people, it's a mark of God's curse if he abandons you to your own devices. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. That's where they went to. Theologian James Montgomery Boyce writes, They would not have God, so God would not have them. That's about as clear and cut as you can say it. They would not have God, so God would not have them. They gave God up, so God gave them up. It's from his book on Genesis. And he goes on to state, When God gives the nations over or up, as the King James Version says, he gives the nations over or up. We are not to suppose that he gives them over to nothing, as if they can just float away on their own and do perfectly well without him. On the contrary, When God gives nations over or individuals up, he gives them up to the laws of his own spiritual universe. And this means that apart from a grounding in him and the truths of revealed religion, their course will always be downhill. Well, that's unique. And then the text of Romans 1 verse 24 comes to mind. The downhill spiral began with sexual immorality and it ended up with a depraved mind that could approve of nothing but wickedness and evil. You can read it on your own. God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. So to be given up to one's own appetites is not a plus. It's a negative. It's not an improvement. It's a spiral downward this holds true for our text and the apostasy of the nations in rejecting god understand here that the rebellion at babel is a description of people on the end of the downhill spiral we've been led to believe that mankind started out he started out in superstition that is with multiple gods and animism. Animism is the belief 
that God is inanimate objects. And then man evolved. He evolved into polytheism, many gods. Finally, that evolved into monotheism, one God. And finally, we have what we have today. That's what's taught in the schools. But you know, this is patently false. In actuality, it was the direct opposite. Adam and Eve began their spiritual understanding monotheistically. One God, one creator. And it's only after sin entered the world that degeneration in the concept of God occurred. That said, monotheism is the basic ground form of religion. Polytheism, many gods, is a later and a degenerate form, expressing itself in the idolatry that devolved, and the end product is a corruption of God. The nation which rejects God does not advance upward. It degenerates downward to such a degree. We have it in our text, the builders at Babylon. That the only hope for humanity is if God steps in by his grace and restarts them moving upward again. And that he does by his grace. Leave me alone, the world says. Leave me alone, God. I don't want you in my life. Well, if he leaves you alone, you will die in your sins. You will perish in an eternal hell that has no end and no rescue. I think it's a foolish thing to pray, God, leave me alone. It's not a prayer I would want him to answer for me. So, what does God do? Well... He reaches down from glory and he touches the life of a a couple named Abraham and Sarah. And could I put it this way? Abraham and Sarah is God's restart button. They're the restart button. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve messed up their prime position as the parents of the race. Sin entered the world, death by sin through their disobedience, Romans 5, verse 12. Noah, after the flood, as the new head of the race, he didn't fare any better. Canaanite descendants of Noah's grandson became the wicked people that populated Palestine throughout Israel's Old Testament soldier. So what did God do? Well, it wasn't that he had someone righteous to work with, not even Abraham, if you think about it, whose father, Terah, was a practicing idolater, just like all the other pagans living around him. And Abraham was taught this false religion too. Joshua reminded the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, of this when they finally crossed the Jordan and entered Palestine after the death of Moses. Let me read it for you. 
Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother. Lived beyond the river. The river is capitalized as referring to the Euphrates River. They lived beyond the river and they worshipped other gods. Idols, right? But, God speaking, I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, led him through out throughout Canaan, and I gave it to his many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Joshua 24, verses 1 through 4. I did that. God is saying, I did that. As part of their worship, Moses taught the people to acknowledge, Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering or Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, verse 6. And Ezekiel adds, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Both of these are pagan groups of people. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You were not washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in a cloth. No one looked on you with pity. No one had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. What's God describing here? He's describing the nation of Israel as an aborted fetus. Mom just doesn't want, throws it out in the field to die. Wow. Ezekiel 16, verse 3 and following. These descriptions are meant to teach us that God's choice of Abraham and Sarah had nothing whatsoever to do with their personal righteousness or their personal obedience to God. No, a thousand times no, no, no. They were born and reared in the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite cultures. All three pagan and opposed to the God of the Bible, just like the descendants of Nimrod, And the people at the Tower of Babel. But it would not have been any different had God chosen some other couple. Think about it. From some other culture. You see, all the nations had descended into the wicked idolatry of that day. But God had to start somewhere, didn't he? So he just reached down from glory And he said to Abram, 
chapter 12, verse 1, leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's household. Go to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. We protest. Hey, oh well, whoa, wait a minute. That's not fair. God can't do that. What about all the other people of that day? Don't they deserve, deserve a chance to be blessed by God? Well, that's just the point. Deserve has to do with merit. And if you're going to talk deserve, remember Paul's description of sinners who disowned God. It's found in Romans 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Whoa. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Romans 1, verse 29 and fall. Wow. Those who do those things deserve. That's, you want to talk about deserve. This is what you deserve. Death. I'm thinking that your sin, like my sin, is listed somewhere in this catalog of vices in Romans. So that the only thing you and I deserve from God is condemnation and hell's death. You say, well, they're, they're just, now wait a minute, Pastor. There just had to be, there had to be something in Abram and Sarah that drew God's mercy to them. Else, why would God single them out as the restart couple to produce a new spiritual race. Well, your thinking, like that of so many, is skewed. You're thinking of earning God's favor through good deeds, but of what we have seen, there is no good deeds. It is as God has declared, there is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3, verse 12. And we're talking good as God defines good, not as man defines good. Doesn't that paint a picture of helplessness and consequently of hopelessness for all of us 
from the standpoint of personal integrity and personal effort, no one does good. Doesn't that throw us on the mercy of God? What is mercy? What's mercy? Some of you might remember the case of Jody Arias, who was the woman convicted of stabbing her husband 27 times and then shooting him in the head. She was duly convicted of first-degree murder. She was sent to the court for the sentencing part of her trial to determine if she would get the death penalty or lifetime imprisonment. What could she do? She had been found guilty. The evidence was overwhelming. She even admitted to the crime herself. Her only recourse was to throw herself on the mercy of the court. Webster's Dictionary defines mercy as this. Mercy implies compassion that forbears punishment even when justice demands it. And in court cases, it's up to the judge. There's no coercion, which applies. There's no bargaining chip. There's no pressure to bear differently. No. The judge is the jury. And he's not compelled by any stretch of the imagination to comply with any plea of mercy. Listen now to God's response in the great courtroom of his decisions concerning sinners who break his law. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, I'm still reading scripture, it does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, verse 15 and 16. What is he saying? He is saying, God is going to do what God is going to do, and you and I have no say in the matter. Nor can we do anything to influence God to pass a favorable sentence towards us. Look on us, Lord, with favor. So what are we, can, what are we left with? We have to plead for mercy. For mercy. And we have to pray for that. If we have one thing in our favor, it is the confidence expressed in the prophet Daniel. The Lord our God, says Daniel, is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him.
Daniel 9, verse 9. That's our God. I love that verse so much, I wrote it out and stuck it on the refrigerator door as a reminder to me, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though I have rebelled against him. Now that's what we see in this text. God reaches down in this sinful world filled with nations who hate God, who have defied God. He says, do this. They say, we will not. He says, go there. And they say, no, we're going over here. Just the direct opposite of everything that God had commanded in the scriptures. So God reaches down and he grabs a hold of a couple, Abraham and Sarah. He was determined to break the chain of sinful progeny or the sinful descendants of Adam and Eve. One thing is true about all the genealogies found in Scripture is this. Sinners produce sinners. That you can count on when you're reading the genealogies. Even the righteous people produce sinners for babies. This is because we are born into sin, and if there is any righteousness, it becomes a reality after the fact. That is... After the physical birth, when in time, through the gospel call, repentance and faith, sinners are born anew. Amen. Paul explains this as being found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that that comes from God and is by faith. Philippians 1, or Philippians 3, rather, verse 9. And he calls it the gift of righteousness in Romans 5, verse 17, that comes through Jesus. So, if sinners beget sinners, if like produces like, and both Abram and Sarah are sinners... Then their idolaters like Terah, Abraham's father. How is it possible for God to break the chain of sinful progeny, sinners producing sinner babies? How's he going to break that? Genesis 11 verse 30 says, Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Well, that's one way to break it. But that doesn't get you very far. Does anyone know what it means to be barren? I think you do. Well, then why add, after that statement, she had no children? That's what barren means. But it's stated a second time, she had no children. So this is a double statement. And it's to hammer home the point. This new couple from which God, in bypassing the history of the nations, will not have to fear that they will be responsible for producing a culture of idolaters and God-haters because, la la la, Sarah can't have children. So 
So at least they won't be part of that. Her womb is reproductively dead. In our day, there are fertility clinics in vitro fertilization available to help barren couples conceive and have children, but none of that was available to Abram and Sarah. Halfway through their marriage, we read, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Genesis 16, verse 1. No children. Two chapters later, we read, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Genesis 18, verse 11. And Paul in Romans makes a big deal about this when he says, Without weakness in his faith, he, Abraham, faced the fact that he, his body, was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. In fact, he was 99 years old. That's about as close to a hundred as you're going to get. And he faced the fact that Sarah's womb, I'm reading scripture, was also dead. Romans 4 verse 19. Dead, dead. Reproductively. Sometimes, brethren, God brings things into our lives which... At face value are heartbreaking and very painful. Here was a couple who, as we shall see in our later study, was hanging on to God's promise. What promise? Chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you, Abraham and Sarah, I will make you into a great nation. Yet there wasn't so much as one baby in the nursery. The time came, as we just read, that humanly speaking, they were too old to have children. Their reproductive organs no longer functioned. But God broke the chain of sinner begetting sinners. And this new spiritual race, with new spiritual heads, Abraham and Sarah, will not be responsible for continuing to produce wicked people. The chain of idolatry had been broken biologically because they couldn't have any children. Okay. But didn't God promise Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child? that would be a blessing to all of the nations. So who was the child that God promised? You will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. At the 11th hour, when these two elderly saints were past their prime to have children, God did activate Sarah's womb and rejuvenate Abraham's body so that the two of them, without a fertility clinic were able to conceive and produce a child whose name was Isaac. Okay. And as a good as good as a man as Isaac became, he was a sinner, just like his mom and dad. All this is very true. 
But Isaac was not the promised seed. He wasn't. He was a symbol of the seed in that his birth resulted from a miraculous work of God, but he was not the promised seed. Listen to Paul explain the reality. Paul writes, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, thinking of the world, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ, not Isaac. Genesis 3, or Galatians 3, verse 16. The word seed here in the Greek is sperma, sperm. The life-generating seed that produces offspring. Jesus was that life-giving offspring. Even more miraculously conceived by Mary, remember. That is born without a sin nature because God himself was the conceiving agent through the Holy Spirit, Luke 1, verse 35. And the people that he produced consists of all believers who, like Abraham, believe God's promise and trust it and rely on it as the source of their salvation, their forgiveness, their cleansing. And so we read in Galatians 3, verse 9, if you you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God had you and me and all the believing in mind as Abraham's seed. Peter words it this way. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, part of the unbelieving culture, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. See, you're disenfranchised from the wicked. You're disenfranchised from the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world anymore. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of he, he visits us. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 through 12. We're not of the world anymore. We're in it, but we're not of it. Now God, way back in Genesis restarted spiritual life in sinful humanity by bypassing the pagan nations 
and fixing his attention on one couple, Abraham and Sarah, and setting their feet on the path to a land, to a salvation based on a promise that God made to them. I asked you this morning, are you on that path too? You can put the full weight of your life on the say-so of God. Abraham did this, and he has indeed become a great nation. Like him, put your faith in the promise of salvation. Chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis, All people on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Jesus is that universal Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. Peter put it this way, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. So Jesus is a must for your life if you want to be forgiven of your sin and shown mercy. There is a coming wrath to be avoided and a saving grace to be grasped onto, and we do that by faith in the Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these Old Testament stories that reach into the New Testament and tell us how great our salvation is. Of all the people on the earth back in the days, you reached down and touched Abraham and Sarah, and you said, I'm going to give you a child that will be a blessing to all of the nations. And it wasn't Isaac. It was Jesus Christ, born in that same line of Abraham and Sarah. Conceived, however, by the Holy Spirit, so without sin, a perfect Savior, to step in and make atonement for our sins. We thank you for that. We bless you for that. May we praise you and thank you. And if there's any here that does not know you, they can know you today by faith in Christ. Grant them that faith. Grant them the repentance to turn away from their sin. For unless we turn from our sin and grasp hold of Christ, we shall perish. But if you will grant us faith and repentance, we then shall become the children of Abraham. Bless and honor your word this day, we pray, for the glory of the Savior, in whose name we give thanks. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is 518 in Trinity. Now, we're going to sing this and then take a, a little break. And then when you hear the music, come back for our communion service. If you're a believer and you're trusting in Christ, come back and we'll gather around the Lord's table then that'll be the end of our services for today. So 518 in the Trinity says, Christ of all my hopes, the ground.
Christ the spring of all my joy. Still in you may I be found. Still for you my powers employ. Still for you my powers employ. Let's stand together. 518 in Trinity. You may not uh, know the words, but you know the music. from the body and present with the Lord. But for your sakes, I know that the Lord's going to let me stay around a while, which he does do. We don't fear death if we know Christ. Okay, we're going to take just a few minutes break. You come back when you hear the music and we'll gather around the Lord's table. This will give us time for our ladies to set up the elements for our remembrance. So we'll dismiss now for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. 